Hey, what a wonderful day for us to be able to come, as I said earlier, to recognize what God is doing in our lives, and also just a Mother's Day for us to recall the memories of our moms and also to be able to thank uh, the moms that God is with us right now. It's, it's an awesome time in our lives to do that. And uh, I did like what, uh, what Casey said earlier about the donuts. And uh, did you do donuts this morning, any of you? No? I might send one of you. I'll give you a pass from the message. If you'll go get us some donuts and bring them back. Might liven us up just a little bit this morning. Give us a little more sugar in our system, you know. There's something, I mean, it's either the Holy Spirit or sugar has to wake us up on Sunday mornings, right? But, uh, hey, it's a, a great time for us to recognize that and to recognize, you know, the moms that have made a difference in our lives, the women who have made a difference, moms, grandmoms, uh, just others who have really lived a life of destiny. And that's what I believe that they've done. I believe God has given those individuals to us to live a life of destiny, to help us fulfill our purpose, to help us fulfill our lives. And what's awesome is that God made the lives of so many of these women count. And as I look at the scripture, I see many other women whose lives counted for God, whose lives counted for Christ and how it challenges us all men or women to live that type of life every day to live a life of destiny I want to begin a new sermon series with you today about this woman named Esther go ahead if you will and you can find that book and maybe you can bookmark it I know some of you have been bookmarking where we were in the life of David but now you can find this new story that we're going to look at the life of Esther And we're going to be reminded how we can make our lives count, how God has a destiny for us. Every one of us in this place, God has a purpose and he has a destiny for who we are. And he wants to work it out in our lives. Even when it seems so unlikely, our God is going to demonstrate his grace and his purpose in our lives. I want you to look at Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. As we just find ourselves submerged in the story, in the narrative. Notice in verse 1, it says, After these things, when the wrath of King Harazarus subsided, he he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. So here we are just emerging ourselves, placing ourselves right in the story. Notice what it says at the beginning of this chapter. After these things. Well, let me give you just a little history lesson. Because I've got to set the context for you. Because it is an unlikely context for us to see a life that is used in such an extraordinary way. I want to set the context for you and give you just a little bit of a history lesson. Now, I know some of you are like, okay, I didn't come this morning for a history lesson. I'm probably going to get a history lesson at lunch today or maybe even later on in the day as I sit around with my family and as we talk about things. I didn't come to church for a history lesson. Well, if you don't understand the history... And you don't set the context, it is hard for you to understand the rest of the story. So let me set it for you for just a moment, okay? Especially for those of you who've been here with us over the last few Sundays. You've heard us talk about King David. And you recognize that King David 
And then under King Solomon, the nation of Israel reached its height. It was at this glorious, powerful moment in the nation's history. But because of King Solomon's sin, and because of his son Rehoboam's insensitivity to counsel, the nation split apart. Civil war came upon the nation. You had a northern kingdom that was referred to as Israel, made up of ten tribes. And you had a southern kingdom referred to as Judah, made up of the other two tribes. And for many years they existed in this type of tension. Back and forth, back and forth, the civil war. Until finally, the enemies from the outside began to come into these nations. First, it was the northern kingdom. First, it was the northern kingdom that saw defeat. Assyria came down in 722 B.C. and boom! There was basically no more Israel. The tribes were dispersed throughout all of the kingdom and people were brought in. And then, before you know it, you have what the New Testament would call Samaritans living in that area. The southern kingdom existed for just a little while longer because they had some good kings. It's amazing what a good king can do, good leadership. For just a little while longer, the southern kingdom survived. And then, in 586, Babylon came and they just razed Jerusalem to the ground. They destroyed the temple and they began to enslave the people. Many of them brought back to Babylon. It was such a difficult moment. In the life of God's people. Some of us on Wednesday nights. We've been looking at Nehemiah. And we've seen how God worked. Even through pagan rulers. To bring the people back to Jerusalem. But here we are. In the book of Esther. Some 100 plus years later. After the destruction of Jerusalem. You have Esther. Who is living in a Persian empire. Basically who is living in, a, in exile, living in this pagan land. It is an unlikely context for God to do something. But yet, God is beginning to write a story. Hey, let me just say here, okay? Even when it looks dark in our lives, God is still at work. Did you hear me this morning? I mean, if you look at history and if you think about it, I mean, some of us, again, tune out when we think about the history of the Scripture or history at any point. But really, when you look at history, you're reminded that even in the darkest moments, God's still at work. God's still there. So it's kind of like one of these stories, like it just so happened. It's just once upon a time, these things began to transpire. And that's what you have in chapter 1, basically. The story that begins. We're introduced to a king, Ahasuerus. Some historians will call him Xerxes. And it says that this king is all caught up on himself. As a matter of fact, he decides that he will have 180 days of celebration, 180 days of banqueting. Can you imagine what this is like? I mean, we know kind of what, how it's like to throw parties, right? I mean, we live in Louisiana, We know how to throw some parties. You know, coming from Mississippi and coming over, I recognized I never knew how to celebrate things until I got to Louisiana. That takes on a whole different type of meaning over here. And it's awesome. And here's King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, 
who throws 180 days, like six months of banqueting, six months of celebration. Everybody in this winter capital of Susa is going to celebrate. Celebrate what? Well, according to verse 4 of the first chapter, they're celebrating the goodness and the greatness of the king. They're celebrating the splendor of his wealth. He's calling them all together to do what? To celebrate him. They found an inscription some years ago of this Xerxes, of Ahasuerus. And it said of himself as he proclaimed this inscription. It said, the great king, the king of kings, the king of lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. Ahasuerus didn't have a self-esteem problem, did he? He didn't have an issue with humility at all. Here he is proclaiming his greatness. So here they are banqueting. And the scripture says at one point they declare this special seven-day banquet on top of it. It's kind of like you had a banquet for six months. You're celebrating for six months. But let's do a special banquet seven days. And we're going to invite everybody in the capital to join us. Thousands upon thousands are going to come. And it's filled with immorality, debauchery, extravagance, perhaps even military planning. But the party is going on. Well, before you know it, according to chapter 1, according to chapter 1, the king becomes so drunk and he loses so much of his faculty that he decides it would be appropriate that his wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, would come out in her crown and demonstrate her beauty for all of the people. It is a dark scene in the scripture. It is filled with immorality. To call your wife out to display her beauty for everyone else. And Vashti the queen says no. No. Hey, could any of us just for a moment say good for her? Yeah. Isn't it awesome that even in the midst of darkness, there are at least a few people that are remembering themselves and there are a few people that are still trying to serve the Lord perhaps or at least they know right from wrong. She says, no. Hey, I think I need to stop here for a moment. Because I think I need to say something to some of us guys who are here in this place. I believe that God has called us in our families to be the spiritual leaders. I believe he's called us as husbands and fathers. I know some of you say, hey, I, Dr. Reggie, I ain't come here for Father's Day. This is Mother's Day. I, w- I was planning on being going on vacation so I wouldn't have to hear the accountability stuff, you know, in June. But those of us, men who are in this place, who are husbands and fathers, God has given us spiritual leadership. And responsibility. I believe it. But that should never be used as an excuse for abuse or for somehow harming our wives, our children, or any others who come into our lives. 
God has given us a responsibility. He is, here, here's this king, this king that looks at his queen as an object to bring her out before all of the people. He did not have respect for her dignity or her life. And look at the culture in which we're living. Where so many men are not demonstrating respect and dignity toward the women in their lives. And it could be in their family's life. It could be just friendships. It could be in the workplace. When we turn on our television, it seems like daily we're reminded that there are new allegations and accusations. Now listen, I believe every allegation and every accusation should be uh, somewhat vetted. And make sure that they are credible. But there is no doubt. Listen to me. There is no doubt that there has been a history of men who have used their position and even their influence to damage the life of women. I know some of you may dismiss the Me Too movement. And I understand the issues that are there, but I'm going to tell you that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be speaking out about these things. And instead of us being being labeled as dominant individuals, we affirm the spiritual leadership that God has given us, but we also remind people that every individual, man, woman, whatever else, is created in the image of God and that we are to demonstrate dignity and respect to all. Too many men have distorted God's intentions. And they have used scripture, unfortunately, to often justify what they have done and who they are. It is a distortion of God's intention. And once again, the church needs to start being the church. And those of us who are believers need to stand up for what is right in our workplaces. We need to stand up for what is right in our culture. It is a dark context, an unlikely context. Well, if you read through chapter 1 again, one of Ahasuerus' servants come, comes, and you know what he says? He says, you can't let Vashti get away with this. If you let that queen get away with this, go back and read it. He says, all the wives of the empire will start acting like she does. I mean, that's what he says. You want to talk about, first of all, exaggeration? But he says, you can't do this. King, you've got, to, you've got to do something. You've got to get a handle on this situation. And the king issues a royal decree that Vashti cannot come before him any longer, that there will be a new queen on the throne. It is a dark context. I'm going to say to you it is an unlikely context for God to move and to work, at least the way we think about things. It is a terrible time in the empire. It is a terrible time in the life of the Jewish people. It is so terrible that Martin Luther said about this book. He said, I wished it, that is the book of Esther, had not come to us at all, for it had too many heathen immoralities located in it. And when you read through it, it just seems like, I mean, just one after the other after the other. But what I would say respectfully to Martin Luther is, The book reminds us that even though there are dark times and dark context, God is at work. Let me give you this truth, okay? Truth moment. Just write it down. God's work is accomplished despite impure 
moments in our lives. God's work can still be accomplished despite impure moments. Even though it's immoral, even though the times are difficult, God can still work. When you, we work through this book in the next few weeks, you're going to see God is at work. Even though it's an unlikely context, even though it's dark, God is still at work. The book of Esther, the only book in our Bible, the only book among the 66 that never mentions the name of God, and yet the fingerprints of God is all over this. Because God is at work. Matthew Henry said it this way, but, but though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of His people's deliverance. Because even in a dark context, God can work. Hey, it's kind of rough for me to work all the way through that history and through that first chapter. As I was reading that this week, I was thinking to myself, man, I don't feel spiritually empowered to go preach. You know, when I'm reading these kinds of things. And yet, that simple truth that I gave you, that God is at work even in impure moments, God is at work. That is such that is such a freeing. That is such an empowering truth in our lives. Because get this, you and I can live in a dark context as well. I'm not one to go around and talk about the sky falling every day. I'm not one to go around and talk about all of the darkness of culture, but you and I we know it. We see it. We experience it. Hey, you and I know what darkness is like in our own personal lives. In our family's lives. In our church's life. In our community's life. We know what it's like. Sometimes just when we're growing so disheartened and so disappointed, we're reminded of the truth that God can still be at work and He is still at work. You may not see Him at the moment. I always marvel at these stories because Esther never realized what was going on until God had placed her upon the throne and put her in that position. But yet God had been working for a long time before. And our God is still at work. Working through dark moments and through dark times. It was an unlikely context for God to work, but God worked. And then there was an unlikely contest that came about. Hey, continue to read here. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Again, when the wrath of, the, of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what he had been decreed against her. Now, according to the timeline that I can understand here in the book of Esther, basically, the contest that's going to be called is somewhere like four years later. In those intervening years, do you know what? Ahasuerus or Xerxes did. He led this Greek campaign. Some of you have heard of the movie of 300 or something like that, probably. Kind of all bound up here. Yeah, some of you just woke up. You're like, he's showing a movie? What's he doing now? He went and he carried out his Greek campaign to which he was devastated. His forces were turned back. He was defeated. He came back, and here he is, 
really in defeat. I mean, this is a guy that had controlled basically from Pakistan to the Sudan today. That's what he had controlled. And he had just experienced defeat. He comes back, and what does he wish he had? He wished he had an affectionate, loving partner like Vashti to come and to comfort him and to bless him. I really believe that. As I look at this passage, he could have had any woman, we know that, but he wanted a partner. He wanted somebody that could share this experience. In defeat, all of the anger that he had had against Vashti just seemed to evaporate. And notice what verse 2 says. The king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdoms, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and to the women's quarters, and let beauty preparations be given them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So get this. This is the plan. We're going to have a beauty contest. I mean, that's what it is, okay? We're going to have a beauty contest. We're going to find the most beautiful women from across the empire, and we're going to bring them in, and those who please you, king, that will be the new queen. I, I kind of like, I, I say beauty cunt, pageants which demonstrate the beauty and the ability and the giftedness and the talent of young men. I, I kind of like still the pageants in, in some way. Uh, so some of you know I grew up in Mississippi. We didn't have much entertainment around in North Mississippi when I, when I grew up. I don't think they still have any entertainment up there from what I hear, but anyway... One of the things we love to do as a family, one of the things we love to do is watch the Miss America pageant. It was kind of like a tradition. Some of you just went, oh, that is so sad. <laughs> I saw it. It occurred in some of your minds. I, I saw it. We would gather together as a family and we would turn on the Miss America pageant. And we all, I mean, we were all... We were always rooting for Miss Mississippi. Listen, folks, it was the only thing Mississippi could win back then, okay? There was no athletic com competitions we had ever win or anything else. So, I mean, we would, I mean, we had some, we had some women that won. Some of you remember back then in that time, and, and we were rooting them on. I mean, here we were, you know, I, I think I shared with you the experience a few weeks ago that my mom, you know, she would prepare herself for the pageant. She would get ready, you know, for bed and the pageant and all, and she would put something on her head to, like, keep the rollers from rolling out and, uh, you know, stuff on her face and all. And her, I, I think I mentioned this, a duster. Remember me telling you that? I don't know why they call those dusters, by the way. I, I never figured that out. But she would all get ready and she would be there and my dad would be there and we'd watch it and we'd root for Miss Mississippi. And we were just waiting for Gary Collins, who was married to a former Miss Mississippi, Marianne Mobley. Gary Collins would begin, there she is. I'm getting excited. Maybe I don't need the sugar of the spirit. I just need to talk about pageants, you know, or something. But it, it, was, it was an awesome time for us. We loved it. We loved it. This one, though, mm, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit darker. They're forcing, Josephus says, 400 different women. They force these women to come. 
And it's like a bachelor competition. It's like the bachelor show. And the king's going to just choose the one that he wants. Verses 12 through 14. I won't read those for you. But basically, it talks about the preparation. They'd be brought in, and for one year, they would be prepared. Six months, it says that they would be given this oil of myrrh. I don't know if they'd go down and get some of those minerals from the Dead Sea, or maybe this was the forerunner of doTERRA. I have no idea, okay? But they would work with them for six months. And then after that, it says the perfumes and the other preparations would be given. So you got the Mary Kay, you got the Tiffany, you got the Chanel, you got all those kinds of things. As a matter of fact, according to one commentary, the word means that, that these individuals would be prepared, quote, as they would rub, polish, signify purification, adorn with all kinds of precious ointments. A contest. To see who would please the king. Man, that's an unlikely type of contest that you would think of. And yet, this is the truth. I gave you the first truth a moment ago. Second truth is similar to it, but I want you to hear it. God's will is accomplished despite imperfect motives. God's will is accomplished, His work is accomplished. Despite the impure moments that you go through and the culture. But also God can accomplish his will even when there are improper motives. Ahasuerus is not doing this to glorify God. The people who suggest this are not doing this to glorify God. But God can take impure motives... And our God is so great and above who we are that he can work around those things and he can still work his will. Ask Paul as he sat imprisoned. Listen to his words in Philippians where he says basically this has actually turned out for the good. Who would have thought being in prison would have turned out for the good? But he says it's turned out for the good. People are bolder in their faith. Because God can take improper motives and he is above them and beyond them and he can work still his will. You don't believe me? Look ultimately to the cross. Pilate, the Jewish leadership, the Roman officials and soldiers, they did not think they were providing salvation to the world when they nailed Jesus to the cross. And yet God was greater than their improper motives. And he provided for us salvation through Jesus. Because our God is big enough to accomplish his will. Well, when you read down, I mean, Esther was an unlikely candidate because, as you see, basically in verse 7 it says Mordecai, and we were introduced to him in verse 5 and verse 6, as a Jewish man who had was the son of one who had been taken from Jerusalem many years before. And it says in verse 7, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, which means myrtle. That is Esther. Her name means star. And she is the star of this narrative, star of this story. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. 
In other words, she was a young orphan girl. Mordecai had come in as her cousin and had taken supervision of her. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Verse 8 tells us that she was forcibly, I think, taken to the king's palace. But she's an unlikely candidate. Think of it. She has no real family outside of Mordecai. And she is Jewish. Jewish. Think about how many candidates for the queen of Persia would be Jewish. And think about how those would object those in the empire, they would object to her being named queen. But it's amazing how our God takes unlikely candidates and, uses, and he uses them for his glory. Isn't it? Because this is the third truth I'd give you. And that is God's way is accomplished despite improbable mortals that we are. God is able to somehow accomplish his will. His way, despite these folks like us who are just improbable heroes of the story. Ask people like Sarah, Rahab, Ruth, Hannah. Hey, how about Mary herself, who were unlikely candidates to be used by God, and yet God used each and every one of them. Some of you may be in here today. You may say, how would God use me? I'd be one of the last ones I think that God would use for the kingdom. Well, you know what? You just named yourself a prime candidate. Because if you think yourself the last person that would be used, that means he probably wants to use you. And if he does use you, guess who gets the glory for it? He does, not you. Because God chooses the most unlikely so that when it is all done and accomplished, when he chooses those people that are just kind of to the side and those people that are the least, when he does those kinds of things and when he works within them, who gets the ultimate glory? God gets the ultimate glory. It's not the individual. It is God who receives the glory for those things. And certainly God gave favor to those who were assisting Esther and helping her. And it led to an unlikely coronation of an unlikely queen. Look at this in verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace. Verse 17 says, The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other young ladies. So he set the royal crown upon her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Because God turned a hazardous heart toward Esther. Now, I believe personally that God had prepared Esther for this moment. Everything about her. I believe God does that in our lives. Just as we talked about Gus and his dedication a moment ago, I believe God is working in his life now to prepare him for what he will use him for. Don't you believe that? I believe that God began very early in my life just, just working. I believe God worked in your life. And, hey, hate to tell you, but your physical attributes, God gave those to you. Your emotional makeup, God somehow worked through different backgrounds and different things. 
to see you where you are, your social interaction, your social skills, all of these things, I believe that God works in his own way. And I believe God had been working in Esther's life to get her to this moment, to prepare her, just as he did later on the disciples. He knew Peter was going to be this, this fisherman that would often stick his foot in his mouth when he would speak. But he knew that he could use that for the glory of the kingdom. He knew that he could. And he took all of these attributes and he brought them together to use them in a tremendous way. He did that in Esther's life and I think he'll do it in ours. And who we are and our uniqueness. God will take us and he will use us. Because God, again, has the sovereignty, the rulership over all things. Proverbs 21.1 said, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Our God is the king above all other kings. He is the one who rules over every other earthly ruler. We believe that. And it is God who places the crown on Esther's head. God's wish is accomplished despite, despite impossible odds, despite impossible means. God's, God's wish is accomplished. We have Esther on the throne. Why is this going to make such a big deal? You're going to see it in the days to come. But why, why is it such a big deal? Because God knows that to save his people... He needs to place this woman in this strategic position so that she will be able to speak out. She will be able to do what she needs to do so that the kingdom will be saved. Hey, why would God choose you? Why would God choose me? It's because he knows that he can use us in his kingdom to bring people to salvation and to life. He knows that. And that is the reason he works within us. Even in dark moments. Even, even when it looks like he is absent from what's going on in our lives. He is working. His will is being accomplished. His way is being known. His wish is being fulfilled. Because he is the powerful king. and He is the one who deserves glory. In our lives. My friends. Will you embrace the life of destiny. That God has given you. Will you embrace the purpose. And the plan. Will you not give up. When the days look dark. But would you trust. In his kingship and sovereignty. To lead you. And to guide you. As you serve him faithfully. Let's pray together. Father. I come to you today and I thank you for the men and women and boys and girls that are here in this place. They're there in the gathering. They're in the sanctuary, Lord. And God, this day, I believe that you have a plan and a purpose for each one. Actually, I believe, Lord, you ordained this hour this morning to have us together for this message. 
And God, I pray, I pray that you would take the unlikely. You would take those that those things that we believe to be impossible and that Lord you would make them not only likely impossible but Lord you would make them reality in our lives and there's some of us in this place again that you are calling that you want to work through that you want to see your will accomplished help us Lord to surrender to you Help us not to give up when it's dark. Help us not to give up when it seems tough and difficult. But help us to know that you are working on our behalf. That you are working for your glory and for your honor. God, bless this moment of invitation and commitment this morning. And help us to respond as you call us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?